I've said this more than once about other things, that this, this little emphasis that they're doing, there's nothing brand spanking new in it. And that's good. Because I would have been concerned if there was anything really brand spanking new in any kind of new initiative. you got to beware. Always be leery of the preacher, teacher, denomination leader, writer of books or professor uh, who says to the church, I got something brand new. You've never heard this. It's never been taught. I got it for you. Uh, that's the That's the preface to heresy in almost every case. So there's nothing really new in this in this emphasis. It's as most things are, it's it's an attempt to sort of bring people back to things, not to invent a new thing, but to bring us back to things um, by by sort of uh, saying it maybe in a a fresh way, um, a reword, which is essentially what all preaching and teaching is, if you think about it. We don't come at you with a new text, but uh, but but it's the old text, and it's the same text. However, you know, hopefully a preacher or a teacher is also not just recycling or plagiarizing word for word the previous week or the last time that that was talked about. But in fact, you know, you want to, you want it in a fresh voice, maybe with a uh, throwing a new light from a new a different perspective or applying it in a way to, to our context that it wasn't applied before because the context was different but the truth is the same all right that's a whole lot of intro uh, for more as my email said there's a video you can listen to them talking about how it happened but they say that it was just a process a sort of a months-long and prayerful process of um, of just sort of uh, you know bringing an emphasis on the things that they feel like are distinct things that ought to be ought to be central. I think you'll agree that they ought to be as we go through them. So we'll spend some weeks. We'll just take a week each and look at the five principles that they laid out. And they say this as sort of introducing this idea of their free Methodist way. They say, quote, free Methodists are first and foremost a kingdom people. Yet throughout church history, God has raised up distinct movements like ours to enrich the larger body of Christ, building on the legacies of John Wesley and B.T. Roberts, but always discerning where God is moving today. Our identity is shaped by values that are both historical and aspirational. Of the many values we hold dear, these five lie at the heart of our movement. We view them as a whole, each one bringing necessary balance to the others. And here are the five that they that they have uh, laid out. And I put the one in the middle that is today. So we start with this one today. I don't know. They don't always put them in this order. I don't know that they uh, care what order they're in. But but we will be looking at all these. God-given revelation is the one today. We start with that. But they've got uh, you know cross-cultural collaboration. If you're able to read the smaller print under those, you can see the descriptions that they give uh, um, of each one. The little blurb. Uh, Love-driven justice. Life-giving holiness, Christ-compelled multiplication, and so they're going to be emphasizing this in, in the you know like Life and Light magazine and other things. I think you probably, if you keep up with any of that stuff, you'll see this. But it's it's a new year, so it's good to start you know by kind of coming back to central things uh, to start a new year. 
And we'll start this five weeks with the one in the middle, which is God-given revelation. And for that, let's have a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, appearing now before you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and following. But as for you, he writes, continuing what, uh, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He goes on to chapter 4. Next verse. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And so he writes. Well, Christianity then, uh, as, we, as he says, the faith... In another place, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It was delivered in that you received it. You did not invent it. Christianity is a revealed religion. It is revealed. We didn't think this up. We couldn't have. We didn't chase down leads and do a lot of uh, discovery work in order that we could, uh, we could come to it. Aha, I discovered it. Because we were so diligent and because we're so smart and because we're so spiritually in tune, that is not how this worked at all. You don't sit here because of uh, the great efforts on your part that you might be able to boast about, uh, about having taken the long journey, worked hard, and you finally discovered it. You came to it. God came to you. Came to you. So what we know about God and a whole lot else we know because God revealed it. He told us. And in more than one way. So the question then, how does God reveal things? How does God reveal things? Think in the Bible about all the interesting ways that God would co communicate it to people in different times and places. He would communicate things. He would reveal things. How? Well, through prophets, we saw we would see that somebody would be raised up, uh, somebody who virtually was, in most cases, uh, a nobody, more or less. In other words, they did not have a degree in, uh, you know, prophet. They didn't have their prophet's degree or a license or certification of any sort. Of any sort, they weren't necessarily the uh, the top of the ch of the chain in terms of scholars or coming from the priesthood or some special class. They were often just absolutely average people, farmers and whatnot. But they would simply be selected for a task and told, I got something to say, you're going to say it. I'm using your mouth 
I'm going to make those. I have some words right now, and, and I'm going to, I want them to come out of your face. Okay, in this case, go to the king, tell him I said X, Y, Z. The, the prophets were often a way that God told the people things he wanted the people to know. That one seems a little more straightforward. Sometimes, though, didn't God communicate things through non-humans? Like angels, beings who are not human beings, but they're beings. And they're messengers. And the Greek word angel, angelos, actually means a messenger. And that's their primary task most of the time, was to deliver news, to tell people something. So angels were often a means. And then you get sometimes dreams. Didn't God tell people things in dreams more than once? And then you get some more wild examples, like a flaming bush or a donkey. That's your favorite. I know that. You were waiting on that one. Or, or a big giant hand that just appears and starts to write stuff on a wall. Or as we looked at last week, it was Epiphany Sunday, we talked about the wise men, a bright star. Now that's not, you know, that's, a, that's still revelation in a sense, right? It's, it's using something phys, uh, physical or something visible anyway. And then, of course, uh, a lot of times we also would see in places in the Bible where God would speak with direct, audible voice. You know? He would just say to them, Hey, Jimmy. What? Here I am. You know. And then the prophet Jimmy would be called to go, Oh, you know, that's in, uh, that's in third hesitations. Don't worry about that one. <laughs> Jimmy. But whoever, you know, more than once, didn't it happen more than once? Just an audible voice. Just You just, you just hear well, here's a question. Are those modes of, are those channels or methods of revelation to be expected as normal modes of revelation? Should we expect that that's, that's the typical way that God will always tell the people of earth the things he wants them to know? Well, not too likely, even just for some obvious reasons. So, so for example... Numerically speaking, I mean, take the population, the populations of peoples around the world, and and uh, and then the instances of a talking donkey or an audible voice or a dream. How often did those things happen? Do we have reason to think they happened all the time, every day, to multiple people? We don't. Those are special cases. That's why they stand out. That's why we know about them. They they stand out because they were. They were remarkable. They're not the norm because the world has millions upon millions of people. And we do not expect, and the, the Bible never indicates, that all of them should be looking around for inanimate objects to talk to them that God will speak to them through, for their pets to say words and God's speaking to their pets, for, for strangers to approach their property and say, Behold, the Lord has sent me to say X, Y, Z, or to, when they dream at night that it's always a unique revelation from God. This is just not what we're taught to expect as a norm, even though it, those things did happen. At critical times. Well, so, you know, so if there are one time events in history 
and they're sensational and memorable for that reason, and I, I shouldn't necessarily expect that I'm going to look around and see those things happen. Well, if that's the case, well then how do I expect to understand what God would communicate to me? How do I know? If I'm not going to if I'm not just waiting for dreams and prophets and speaking animals and audible voices as I wake up and go through my day-to-day life, if I'm not looking for that, then what am I looking for? What is the norm then? Well, revelation then is is generally discussed by uh, throughout the throughout the history of the church by talking about what they call general and special revelation. This isn't something broken down within the Bible, but it is something that uh, has been sort of commonly said among theologians. And and uh, general revelation is referred to in this longer passage here. God-given revelation. They, there's there's more said. This was written also by I don't know who exactly did it, but it's on the website when they're describing it further. And it's referred to in here when it talks about tradition, reason, and experience. General revelation is uh, it refers to the faculties that God gave all of you because you know He made you the way you are, making you in His image with a sense of reason, with the ability to recognize the wonders of the creation, the capacity for complex relationships, the tendency toward pretty deep questions, your emotions, Things you discover are about the world, like you know, math and the sciences, a sense of wonder that you have, music, beauty in different places and different forms, your moral awareness that you carry with you, your sense of intuition, all of this would fall under the category of general revelation. Some people call it natural theology. It's the things that people ought to ought to have some awareness of. And ought to point, kind of like point us, Godward. And does, in fact. Because people all over the world are innately and inherently religious, aren't they? They are. People are people are religious almost by nature. Because of all these things, general revelation causes people to look and search and want to find God. As Paul told the Athenians, remember? You... Uh, that he might, of all the peoples around the world, that they might search after him and grope to find him, though he is not far from any one of us. That's the general revelation. Special revelation are those things I mentioned from the Bible, things supernaturally revealed. Right? That like not everyone would just innately know some of those things that are revealed. Those are things that that intuition doesn't necessarily tell you. Your moral sensibilities don't tell you, right? Uh, the maths, math, the sciences, and logic, you know, these, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't tell you. They have to be told to you primarily now. The apex of all of special revelation is Christ himself, the word made flesh. And then, of course, in the scriptures, as it says in this passage we read in Timothy, the, the writings, the graphe in the Greek. The writings that Paul referred to. These are things that we could not have known otherwise through general revelation. The book of Hebrews, as you know, begins with these words, quote, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, 
God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But, verse 2 says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by what? His son. Jesus is the ultimate up close in the flesh revelation. The word made flesh. And so and so but but he doesn't roam the earth throughout the centuries in the flesh teaching everyone in all the ages, does he? His public his public life was a, a few short years. So then what what about everyone who comes afterward? And so primary for the church has been these writings that Paul refers to, able to make you wise for salvation. These things that he says are God-breathed. Theonoustos is his word. Theonoustos, God-spirited, God-breathed. The word inspired is from Latin, but it means the same, the basic thing. So here's this further description on the screen here. In case it's hard to read, I'll just read it. God-given revelation. They write this, quote, we, uh, we hold unwaveringly to our conviction that the Bible is the inspired word of God and our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. Drawing on our Wesleyan heritage of engaging with Scripture through the lenses of tradition, reason, and experience, we keep Scripture primary. While the church will always be tasked with authentically communicating the uh, and applying biblical truths with sensitivity to cultural dynamics, we do not subjugate the Bible's timeless truths to cultural norms or social trends. The free Methodist way is to fully align our lives and our movement on the unshakable foundation of God's Word. So you see, some of you now, you recognize the reference to those three things, tradition, reason and experience and some of you recognize that as part of what has been called in the past the wesleyan quadrilateral here's your vocabulary lesson for the day the what all right so all you raisins in, in any kind of wesleyan tradition you know all about this i was not raised in that tradition but i went to school and learned all about it in the seminary when we when we learned all the church history and all the great uh, uh, Christian leaders and thinkers, and we learned all about this. The Wesleyan quadrilateral looks something like this. Now, I need to say that the shape of it will tend to give the impression sometimes of four equal sides and thus four equal sources or authorities. This, of course, is not what Wesley himself believed. It's not what you just heard in that description that I read, is it? You didn't hear that in the You didn't hear four equal things. The description I just read said uh, engaging with Scripture through the lenses of the other three, but keeping Scripture primary, which is much closer to and actually in line with Wesley's beliefs himself and what I think is a, is a true and historically Christian understanding. Now, sometimes they will draw the quadrilateral and put Scripture at the base, like right here, which is good because what they're implying there is that it's foundational, right? It's foundational. The other things are built on it. Sometimes they'll put it at the top. So I have another one. Look at the next one here. 
It's similar to this one, but so someone else draws it like this, and they put scripture at the top and put it in different font, or sometimes it's in all caps or whatever. Like in other words, trying to show the primacy of it. Well, Wesley didn't use the word to talk about this. He didn't invent this, but uh, and interestingly, the man who did uh, came to regret it later. So here's from uh, here's from one church historian writing about this. He says Wesley never employed, quoting here. The quadrilateral imagery. It was a great Methodist theologian, Albert Outler, who coined the term and who later wrote, quote, The term quadrilateral does not occur in the Wesley corpus, and more than once I have regretted having coined it for contemporary use since it has been so widely misconstrued. And so another theologian, Randy Maddox, Methodist theologian at Duke University says it like this. He says, Wesley's so-called quadrilateral could more adequately be described as a unilateral rule of scripture with a trilateral hermeneutic of reason, tradition, and experience. Your second vocabulary word for the day, I guess, would have to be hermeneutic. Although I've used that one a few times, so, you know, keep bringing it back. Hermeneutic just refers to interpretation. That's it. It's your fancy word for interpretation. So if you want to, so if you ever are in a context and you and you want us to talk about interpretation, but you want to sound high and mighty and pretentious, just substitute it for hermeneutic, and everyone will say either "ooh" or "what a jerk" <laughs> or something. But you know, that's all it means. So he's saying it's better to think of it as Scripture is the rule. But you do have, when you're interpreting and trying to understand, understand the Bible, what are you bringing to the table? What are your helpers? What are your helpers? And they would be things like reason itself, tradition, and experience. And what are those things, by the way? Reason, of course, is the unimpeachable uh, laws of thought that cannot be, they cannot be changed or usurped. We have no way to get outside of reason. It is, it is the way that the mind proper, properly functioning is supposed to work. We do get outside of it, but we do it wrongly. You, don't, you never get outside of reason legitimately. You, you cheat it or you violate it is what you do, which people do all the time. But you do, not, you, you do not ever get the better of it. In fact, if you were to try to say, I, I don't believe that reason is actually... Uh, right or good or a true guide or whatever, you would have to use reason to make your case. See? And so you can't do that. Aristotle knew that. The pagans, the, the, the greatest geniuses from all uh, cultures came to understand this. But Wesley knew, and all true uh, Christian thinkers have understood that reason is what it is because God is who he is. Because at the center of all creation and all everything is, a, is an infinite mind, then our minds reflect that infinite mind. So we were given the capacity for reason. Your pet doesn't have this. The capacity to, to put propositions together and draw the inferences from them. We, they can't do it. But reason is a voice that, can't, that cannot be and should not be thwarted. Otherwise, this leads to insanity and, and contradiction. One of my favorite uh, writers who died a few years ago was Dallas Willard. I quote him all the time on this. He said, reason is a voice everyone hears. It's general revelation. 
Everyone hears it, except except people who are legitimately crazy. I mean, there are people whose minds are sadly so off the rails that they, they, unless you've got that kind of a problem, and that's an illness, of course, unless that's the case, you can't not hear it. You can suppress it. You can try to cheat it. You can play games, but you must hear it. Well, so Wesley said the same. So reason is one of those things. Um, Obviously, tradition, there have been wise and respectable Christian leaders and thinkers all throughout the ages. They don't hold authority over the Bible. They don't hold authority equal to the Bible. But they hold some authority. They hold some authority. Because they had spent their lifetimes, put in the work, gifted in whatever ways. They're worth listening to. They may help you. They may give you insights. As you're trying to understand the word revealed and you have a hard time understanding it, maybe someone who is wise, even if they are no longer with us, maybe some of those people, especially a group of those people, right? So the wider you read, in the counsel of many, you know, comes wisdom. You get nearer and nearer, I think, to true understanding. The more voices you hear. A lot of times today, um, there is the habit in our world of of gaining your knowledge in all the wrong ways. (laughs) All the wrong ways. So that so that you, uh, you, your quadrilateral might, might look like um, my feelings today, what my peer group said, random people on the internet, some celebrities. And, and moreover, instead of reading widely across various uh, opinions, I, I'm, only looking at, I'm only looking narrowly at the handful. I'm, I'm in a silo. And that's where I live, and I, I'm not even sure what they say outside the silo, except it must just be bad. This is not the way. This is not the way to live. Well, what about Wesley? Um, just to show you, though, that he, uh, to demonstrate to you what his view truly was. Then let me give you a few quotes. I'll just read some of these to you from his explanatory notes on the New Testament. He says, concerning the scriptures in general, it may be observed. The word of the living God, which directed the first patriarchs, also was, in the time of Moses, committed to writing. To this were added, in several succeeding generations, the inspired writings of other prophets. Afterward, what the Son of God preached, and the Holy Ghost spake by the apostles, and the apostles and evangelists wrote. And this is what we now style the Holy Scripture. This is that word of God which remaineth forever. I like this thing he wrote in one of his journal entries. He said, My ground is the Bible. Yea, I am a Bible bigot. I follow it in all things, both great and small. And in his preface to his sermons that were printed, he said, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unus libri, a man of one book. 
And we're not sure if if uh, I've seen this, you've seen this, or I have at least a few times, where they say, a man of one book, a student of many. I don't know if that was a quote from him, or it may have been a description of someone else, of Wesley. Uh, but it's an accurate one. Because a man of one book, a student of many. Meaning, of one book, not I never read anything else, but of one book in terms of authority. So, you know, Wesley had enough of the Reformation writers in his, in his mind and in his blood. He quotes them a lot. That he, he agreed with uh, the phrase sola scriptura that the Reformers always used in Latin. Sola scriptura, the Bible alone. By which they did not mean I never read anything else. I've never read anything. in No other book exists. I read nothing but only the Bible. They didn't mean that. They meant sola in terms of authority. They meant sola as it sits at the top of the food chain in terms of the final authority. That was what that phrase was uh, in the description that we read from the bishops when they're talking about final authority. They didn't say only authority, right? But only a top, only at the top. Like in other words, when you know, it's sort of like in a there is a there's always a court of appeal until you get to the highest one, and then there's no court above that one. That's the Bible. It's the supreme court on matters of doctrine and all truth. It, there, you can't say, well, I didn't care for that. I will appeal above it. There has been no word revealed by which you interpret that word. That is it. That's what he meant. A man of one book in terms of authority, in terms of, in terms of true guidance, but a student of many. So that you can... But the many... The many, hopefully, help to continually renew and prepare your mind to better read and understand the one, if that makes sense. Well, uh, so Wesley did believe then that reason, tradition, and experience were guides to help interpret the word correctly. I like this line also where he said, he says, I wish to be in every point, great and small, a scriptural, rational Christian. A scriptural, rational Christian. Remember that, uh, you know, when Paul's writing to Timothy in our passage, he says, be sober-minded. Because Paul knows that I could send you, we, we, you could have the copies of the sacred writings at your disposal. But if you're wild-eyed and your mind is all over the place and you're not sober-minded, what good is it to you? We have Bibles. We have how many translations do we have? In English, we have countless translations. They're rolling them off the press all the time. We got a million apps for the Bible. I mean, the Bible is is pervasive. But what good is it doing our society? Nobody's reading it. Nobody's reading it, and a great majority no longer care what it might have to say, or have relegated it as a relic of a past age that we will evolve past and move beyond. Because we're better, smarter, wiser than all the people that ever lived before us. And so having the Bible, what good is that? If your mind isn't sober, Wesley could have said, I want to be a scriptural, um, irrational Christian. <laughs> what, would that, what good would that do? The Bible doesn't help the irrational person because they might read anything in it. The irrational man could read any passage and just make it and just think it says whatever. He did, for that matter, he might interpret it to be the opposite. 
the irrational man could, could read, thou shalt not murder, and say, to me this says, kill any folks I want to. If they make me mad. Well, where did you get that? See, but if you're irrational, it doesn't matter. The meaning this doesn't have any have to have any connection for it. That's the emphasis, Wesley says. I want to be a biblical person, and I want to be a sober-minded, responsible person with with how my thoughts are formed and guided and how my decisions are made. So on the high list of sources, then, of general revelation are not peer opinions, personal feelings, group think, or the official knowledge that is dictated from sources of government power and so on. Those are not high on the list of of uh, things revealed that you ought to trust. Those are things you ought to be suspicious of. Those, some of those things can guide you correctly at times. It's not impossible. But, but they, are, they, are, they are not reliable in a consistent way to lead you to truth. And so wise people do not rank those things highly. Those, those things fall below the others. So that whatever, I, whatever my feelings are in a moment, i got to run them through. I've got to run them through, uh, past the censors, if you will, of reason, uh, of Scripture above all. And then reason and the wisdom of others that I've learned from and the experience that you've had. This is why the longer you live, the more you figure some things out. It's called experience. And it does matter. It does matter. Paul says that this word is thea noustos, as we said. God breathed. Some of your translations actually say inspired by God. So it's the same basic thing. So do we believe in biblical inspiration? Yes, we do. And do we believe that the Bible is authoritative? Yes, we do. And that's why this is the right beginning place, I think, of these principles we're looking at, of these emphases, these five. I think it's a proper starting place here because the rest of them that we're going to look at, they all have to spring from that source, which they do. But if they didn't, then then we would we would have to question them, because it is the Bible. Incidentally, um, incidentally, people it's, it's a, sometimes surprising, or or at least humorous. Okay, that uh, how often uh, people will will be relying on the Bible unwittingly. To, uh, to maybe criticize the views of people who traditionally believe the Bible. I, now, that may sound circular and weird. What I mean is someone will say, well, you, um, and a Christian might think this too, um, you, you know, you, you shouldn't say X, Y, Z because um, in the Bible, I have a problem with the Bible and all of its teachings because I just don't believe in judging people. I believe in judge not. Where, pray tell, did you get the notion of the idea of judge not? What source did that wisdom come from? Where did you ever hear such a thing as judge not? See what I'm saying? From the very, from that very source, you you now seek to, uh, you now seek to throw out to throw. I'm going to throw this overboard, and if you ask me why, I will quote from it. Well, what sense does that make? People, there is more. There is, and for that matter, even if not quoting it, so much of the moral language of people today, I don't think they can account for. Because, and that's why you have to have a foundation. 
That's why you have to begin with God-given revelation. And it sounds like a devil's advocate thing to do, but I do think it's legitimate. Um, you know, what the the world still has a a sense of the moral. This is why this is this is how you give yourself permission to be in the right and to condemn other people's points of view. Is you must believe that you are the virtuous one. Well, if then we say something like, um, "I stand on the idea of, of human rights or human dignity," I think it is reasonable to ask. What are those, in, in your view, and where do they come from, and why would you say people ought to respect them, if they even exist? Because now you're asking the foundation question, based on what? Who says? We have to be ready to say who says and why. We have a very good reason why we believe in universal human rights, and why we believe that no individual, no culture, no group uh, is inherently superior to anyone, but that there is a full that humanity is fully the ground is completely level. We have good good reasons for that. But I don't know what reasons others would have. And if the Bible if the Bible is no longer authoritative, if it's just the whims of ancient people writing their own thoughts, I have to question all of those wonderful principles I just mentioned. I have to question them. What reason do I have to believe in them? Besides the peer pressure of my of my surroundings that tell me you better believe in them or you're bad. But secretly I may not, because I may not have a good reason. I may I may question them. Confidence in that which is true comes from holding unwaveringly. It's a good it's a good practice in a new year. In fact, we all have to do this, don't we? When the new year starts, you have to, it's good to say I'll take advantage of the of the flipping of the calendar. You know, I'll take advantage of that. To kind of get back to things that, you know, maybe we got away from. And number one and high on that list would have to be the word. Getting back to it. I mean, we're there's no shame here in admitting that ain't easy. That, that, we're, that we're busy and that we're distracted. And that, you know, I mean, let's just admit that. There's not one of us in here, I think, that wouldn't say that. So you don't need to sit here and feel like, oh my gosh, I feel so guilty. I don't even hardly read the Bible anymore. I get so busy, I don't even do it. The point here is not is not for us all to just pack our bags and go on a long guilt trip together. That is not the point. The, the point is, it's a new year. Why not use that to make a new commitment? And so let's say together, we will get back to this. This is a whole part of the whole point of this emphasis. Let's get back to the source. Back ad fontes, as they used to say. Back to the font. Back to the source. So, the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. And as Paul says here, profitable for all the things that we will do here. For for when we pray and when we sing and when we teach and when we have small group Bible studies and when we uh, when we plan what we will do, when we go out into the whatever we're doing, the Word of God is the profitable guide and source for all of it.